Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I am blessed and honored to be in dialogue with Jane LaSonder. We will be discussing her book, Red Alert, The Inside Story of Prostitution and Human Trafficking, published in Zwolle, Netherlands by Skulten, 2016. Jane is an expert by experience and is here to share her findings and her research with us. Jane, it's an honor to be with you today. I'm tremendously grateful. Thank you. And thank you for inviting me. Can you tell us about the books you've written? Can you tell us about your first book, Jane, and its relationship to this book, Red Alert? Yeah, okay. I About 10 years ago, I wrote with a man called Hank Storfo, who my my own personal story in a book. And the reason I I'd, I'd actually didn't want to write a book about my story, I thought, who's ever going to read my story? Who's going to want to hear about my story? And it, you know, it was a little bit of a struggle, actually, to get it to get it put down into paper. But it all started many years ago when I was a child, and I was a victim of trafficking. And I was sold to, you know, a group of men and abused, tortured, locked up many times in hospital. When I was 15, I ran away. I was about to jump in front of a train, actually. And I just felt like life was worthless. I I was worthless. And I was going to jump in front of a train. And I just felt like this presence sitting down next to me. And I, to me, that was God, but... You know, this is just how I, I, how I lived this experience, and I just felt this presence sitting next to me, and I was just going to jump in front of this train, and the train was coming, and I just felt this voice saying to me, "Don't jump. I have plans with you. In the future, you will be on a train, and look out and see the people sitting in the darkness." So this never ever left me, and then my story ends up in Israel. I lived on the streets. I, I tried to kill myself. I always just felt like I was invisible and, and worth nothing. And I ended up meeting my husband, who's Dutch, living in Holland, having two wonderful children. And I ended up doing uh, trauma counselling for three years, which was amazing. And then I suddenly became aware of not just my own pain and trauma, but of the world around me. And I saw so many broken people who I would talk to who would say to me, you know, I feel like killing myself or I, I'm worthless. And I would say to them, but it's not true. There is hope. And I would share little bits of my story. And it would I would see that it would encourage them and give them hope and help them get help. And I got a bit frustrated telling people one by one. And then Hank Storfogel, who is a brilliant writer, and he started the men's movement, the Four Musketeers, which does a lot of money raising and, you know, really amazing thing to you know for to fight against social injustice and he said to me let's write your story so that it can be spread out and it can give more people hope so i thought okay we'll do that and it'll probably come out in my town in swallow maybe 20 people will read it and get hope and that's okay and but he had bigger ideas and he said you've got to promise me that for the first year when you've when this book is published 
any invitations to speak in the media or anywhere, you promised that you will do it. And I started to cry and I just felt like really insecure. Like, how can I speak? I'm just not able to do this. I've got no training. I don't have a degree. And then he said, well, I'm not going to write your book then if you're not going to do this because you need to promote it. You want people to hear the story to, to help them. So then I thought, who's going to want to ask me anyway? So I promised. And it was just amazing. From the first day the book came out, the first year, I got so many invitations for television, radio, magazines, youth conferences, many different places. And I just did it. And I just felt, wow, this is really something I want to do. I want to be the voice to give encouragement to people. And then the most amazing thing happened is that somebody um, sponsored my book. And they put the book out into different prisons and into the red light area of Amsterdam and to different places. And one day I got a phone call from a man called Fritz. And he's got an organization in Amsterdam called Bright Fame that work with victims of trafficking and work in the red light district. And he said to me, there is some women in the red light district who are standing in the windows in their underwear reading your book. And he sent me a photo of a girl reading reading this book and it touched my heart so much. And some of the women didn't even speak Dutch and my book, Jane, is in Dutch. And they got a translator to translate it for them. And I was blown away by this, like, you know, this is amazing. And then Fritz said to me, some of the women have asked for me to contact you because they want to speak to you. So I went to the, I went so naive to Amsterdam. I was in my mind thinking, these women are prostitutes. They want to be there. They're getting paid. The doctors are coming every week. You know, why do they want to speak to me? And I was so wrong. I I was so ashamed afterwards when I realized this horrible, horrible, dark world of human trafficking and forced prostitution. And that's how my book Red Alert came, because walking down the red light district with Fritz to go to speak to one of the, the first woman who I spoke to is called Elizabeth. And I wrote her story in my book. And she told me such a traumatic story. And if you want, I can tell you that later but she told me such a, a traumatic story that my heart broke and at the same time she was telling me this story I saw outside the window school children with a school teacher walking past the window and the, they were laughing at the women and the school teacher looked into the window and said this is our beautiful culture and I was so shocked I thought if you could hear what Elizabeth is telling me now stories of being kidnapped and raped and traumatized, you wouldn't be teaching these children that this is okay and this is beautiful. So I got really, really, really mad. And then a man walked past, stood at the window and was doing disgusting things at the window towards the woman. So I ran outside and I kicked him as hard as I could. And Fritz got a bit angry with me and said, Jane, we don't do that here, our organization. You can't go around kicking everybody. We need to be positive. We need to be there for the women and to help them and not go around kicking everyone you'll be in danger or you'll get arrested so after hearing her story I went home crying and then I just thought how can I this small woman who knows nothing about human trafficking who 
Dutch is my second language. How can I do anything? And I was so frustrated. And I just felt, well, you can use your voice. You can be the voice for the girls who don't have a voice. And these girls were trusting me. They related to my story. And Fritz told me that this woman who I was speaking to, he'd got to know her for five years and he still couldn't help her. She wasn't opening up. She was just saying hi and, you know, sometimes got help to fill out a form or or, or something. And suddenly she opened up and she, her whole story came pouring out and we was able to help her. Was able to, she's now safe. But then I sat down and many people laughed at me when I said, I'm going to write a book. Because Book Jane, I told my story, but I didn't write it. Hank wrote it. And I don't have a degree. I don't have an education. And I told some people, I'm going to write a book. And they just laughed and said, you, how can you write a book? And that made me so determined, like, I'm going to show them. And I sat down and it was like blood, sweat and tears to write this book. And but I did it and I did it for the women. And it it took a, a couple of months to write it. And Skolton, who published my book, had faith in me. They they saw that this book would help people. So they, they published it and it went amazing. It's in Romanian, it's in Dutch, it's in the UN and the WHO want to use the book as well. So it, it, it's opened doors for me to go and speak in parliaments and to be on panels and to work with amazing people in the anti-trafficking world. And I've seen that women are getting helped and people are getting awareness and people are standing up and wanting to be a volunteer for different organizations so i'm just really happy that i didn't give up when people laughed at me and that's how my book came about and if you want me to tell later about the first story i heard that was the fact that made me want to write the book i can tell you that as well sure in fact in in light of that can you tell us what surprised you in the course of this research okay the first thing what surprised me was what I touched upon in the beginning was that actually I was ignorant of human trafficking. I never even knew the term. I didn't know what it meant. Maybe I was stupid, but when I talk to many people, even now, they don't believe that it can happen in their own safe country. Like I live now in the UK. People think, oh, it doesn't happen here. It happens far away. It happens in Yemen. It happens in, uh, you know, poor countries. So people are, are like, their eyes and ears are closed to this. And then going to the red light district, I also thought, well, this is the culture of, of the Netherlands. Um, other countries have red light districts as well. And that these women, it, it's it's work. That's what I thought. And that they got lots of money and a doctor came every week. And when I actually stood there and I talked to the women in my book, none of them had had a doctor coming around the windows. None of them had any money. Um, they were all like forced into this. It, it's at, And it's not work. I get really mad when people call it sex workers because how is being kidnapped from your house and forced into a room to have sex with men and women come as well seven days a week? It's, it's A human body can't even take that. So how is that work? You know, we have to call it by its proper name, and that is people are being raped. And we're walking past thinking this is okay, and it's not okay. And that's something that I really learned that, um, and people, when I talk to people and I say, oh, I used to live in the Netherlands, 
And they all laugh and say, oh, Amsterdam, oh, we've been there on a stag night. We've been down the street. And I said, would it be a laugh if it was your mother or your daughter or your wife who was kidnapped out of your house in the middle of the night, forced and told that if they run away or tell anyone, somebody's going to be killed in their family and they're being raped day and night. They're terrified. All they can think about is they wish they were dead. Would you be laughing then? And then I see a change in people and they say, we didn't know this. So this is something that, you know, needs to change. Uh, The reason I wrote Red Alert was to raise awareness is because many people like me who didn't even know what human trafficking is or that people are being forced or exploited. So I wanted people to read it and be shocked and to think, wow, I've got stories in here from Israel, from, from the UK, from the Netherlands. It happens in every country and in every town. So I wanted people to read it, to stand up and say, this has gone far enough. And that if if everybody is aware and people get educated, then maybe we can all get together and, you know, join together the fight against this terrible crime. What should hospital healthcare workers know about human trafficking victims that they do not know? Why do they not know? What can be done to change this? Well, going back to when I was a child, I was in hospital many times, seven, eight, nine years old, 13 years old, with many different injuries caused by men who were abusing me. And not one healthcare worker ever asked me, are you okay? Are you safe? And I just felt like invisible. And then in my research for this book and talking to many victims and survivors of human trafficking, I heard the same stories again and again. That most of these women had been in an emergency healthcare setting with injuries, punctured lungs. Uh, one lady who I met who was Dutch, she was pregnant five times while she was being forced in the windows. And five times her trafficker beat her so badly and kicked her so badly in the stomach that she lost her babies. And one time she tried to kill herself. She's, she, she, as she got beaten so badly, she had punctured lungs about three times. So every time she was in hospital with these horrific injuries and she said no one ever asked her, are you safe? Are you okay?" And her trafficker would come with her and he would stay all day and he wouldn't leave even when they asked him. And he would only leave really late at night when she went when she was supposed to go to sleep. And she said she would try and stay awake half the night, but she was too scared to tell anybody what was happening. But she was staring at them, the nurses, as if to say with her eyes, help me. And nobody even was aware. And I've spoken to a boy who's 18 who was being forced into slavery, uh, selling drugs. And he tried to run away and they ran him over and shattered his legs. And when he ended up in hospital a couple of weeks, he told a, a different story what happened. And the doctor said, this is not possible that these injuries is caused by what you said. And then he just went quiet. And they they just got him better and sent him home instead of helping him because then the gangs found him. When he got forced again, he got beaten up, he got locked up, he got forced to sell drugs. Really terrible things. But that's a missed opportunity. And I talking to these women, hearing their stories of why they're being trafficked, that sometimes they would go to hospital because they would have died otherwise. This is the... the I did some research and I found out that almost 90% of people who are trafficked 
end up in a healthcare setting while they're being trafficked. And only 10% of doctors would know what to do. And I just think that this really needs to be changed. So I got together with a friend of mine, a Professor Alison Fiander, who's a gynecologist and she teaches medical students and she sets up clinics um, in Africa and she's amazing. And we got talking about this and she said when she was a gynecologist, she also didn't know if somebody was a victim of slavery. She didn't ever have any education on this. And sometimes she had an intuition that something wasn't right, but she didn't know what to do and there were no policies in place. So we decided to set up a task force, which we set up a task force called Red Alert Task Force. And we got different doctors and policymakers and people to join. And more people are joining as we speak to write a training program to go into medical schools to teach medical students how to spot a victim of trafficking, what to do to get policies put into place, to go into schools to teach children the, the dangers of being groomed, the dangers of being forced to go and have sex with somebody. And this is happening to our children. And, and by not educating them or teaching them this, we're putting them in danger. So in November, Alison went to the board of a hospital in Cardiff and said, can we come and do a training for a week on human trafficking? And they said we could, which was amazing because universities are not teaching our medical students anything about human trafficking and if some of them do teach anything it's like just a couple of hours basically telling them a little bit about human trafficking and that's just not happening in very many places and we did a whole week training and the students actually we had 21 students and when we talked to them and asked them, did they know anything about human trafficking? They did not. They didn't even know it was happening in, in Wales, in the UK, in, in the UK, in England. They didn't. They thought it was happening far away. And they were so shocked. And they didn't even know of any organisations that were working in the fight against human trafficking. They just had no knowledge of this. And this is our next generation of doctors. So we we hired um, actors, we did role play with case studies. The, the students became the doctor and treated the patient. And some of them were in tears and said, we're never going to be ignorant again. And we're going to stand up and we're going to get students together and we're going to go and teach other students. So this is happening right now, which is really exciting. But talking to doctors there, because a couple of doctors came to help us, they also didn't ever get any education or know what to do. So healthcare workers now need to get awareness, they need to get education, and the governments need to stand up and know that this is important and go into medical schools and say, you need this on the curriculum and you need to teach your medical students how to spot a victim of trafficking, what to do, policies in place to get them safe. They need to know what's out there, what tools are out there, like the national referral mechanism, which can help them get uh, uh, somebody who's a potential victim into safety and you know this is the next step from red alert i'm writing now a new book that's going to be published by springer called health and and slavery together with allison and that's coming out at the end of this year and we hope it's going to be a guide for healthcare workers that can go out and teach their medical students and doctors and healthcare workers what to do now because it's a missed opportunity 
so many victims, even while we're speaking, are in a healthcare setting, maybe with a horrific injury or pregnancy or mental health issues, and there's somebody sitting next to them keeping their mouth shut and there's a doctor who's got an intuition that something's not right but they don't know what to do so this person is not being helped so that's what healthcare workers it's not their fault because if you don't know like i didn't know a few years ago how do you know that something's wrong but we need to know that this is something that's happening more and more and it's happening it's happening in america it's happening in canada it's happening in europe it's happening maybe where you're sitting now, Ari, if you look out the window and there's a street in the distance, it could be happening in one of them houses right this minute while we're speaking. And people just walk past that house and they're not aware that bad things could happen in a normal street. How were and are health problems dealt with among trafficked women? To what degree were and are doctors, hospitals and medical care available well if you're trafficked and you're forced and you're taken to a brothel a hotel a red light window whatever and the trafficker is not going to take you for normal control you're not going to go and check if your blood pressure is okay or you're only going to go to a healthcare setting in an emergency because the trafficker is not going to let um his victim his person who he's forcing to to make money for him he's not going to take her to a situation where he could be found out so that's the only healthcare they get is emergency healthcare and not all of them get that i mean there's many victims of trafficking who die because they've got so ill and they have no help in developing this book what ethical considerations did you act upon well when i wrote this book I was really aware that I didn't want to just use um, people who were being sexually exploited for their story, just to to write a book and make a sensation and earn lots of money on this book. That's not the reason behind my book. I do not earn even one euro or one pound on this book because I decided that all the money that that I earn on this book with royalties or when I go and do an event or speak and I sell this book, it, I put it back into, I've put it, I've given it to a few different charities and I've met individual um, women who have just got into safety but didn't have any clothes or couldn't pay the rent or didn't have food. I was able to help them. And now I'm putting it back into my task force because we need, I need to ask people to go out maybe for a couple of days to different places to teach school children to teach medical students and I can't really ask people to take a week off their own work not get paid and then go and do this and then not even pay their train fare or their petrol so it's it's stopping me able to do this work so any books that I write the money's going to this and the health book that me and Alison are writing all the money's going back into the task force as well so that was like something that I thought was ethically good to do and plus the women we i didn't just walk around and walk into a red light window and hear a story from one of the women and just write it all down walk away make my book and the woman is still being abused because that would really be wrong so safety first i mean when i met these women we made sure that they got safe first and only listen to their story and write it down because they wanted to 
And some of the women would tell me way too much and it would be such terrible details. It would make a sensational story, but I didn't want to do that. So some of the stories in here are much milder than in reality because I wanted to protect them because I don't want these women in 10, 20 years when they've got their own families regretting that I've written, you know, I've laid them bare in my book. We only put in the book what we thought was responsible, which they wanted to share to help somebody else not get into the same situation or for people to be aware that these things happen. So that's that's how I wrote my book. I tried to be really sensitive and I do not want to make money on the backs of these women because then I would be exploiting them as well. How did your interviewees respond to being interviewed and telling their story? How did they cope with the re-traumatization of telling their story? Did they feel that this was a cleansing process for them? Did they feel that they were helping others through sharing their story? Well, some of the stories was women who had been saved and rescued and had asked to speak to me. And we sat down in a safe place and they just said, we just really want to tell our story and we want to use our story to help other people. And actually, I've spoken to more women than that's in my book, because some of them, I just knew it would be wrong to write their stories. I just knew it was too difficult for them because they'd start crying. And I knew that they, they needed first to get trauma therapy. So I didn't, I, sometimes I just stopped and said, just gave them a hug and said, look, you're not ready to tell it. Even if you want to wait till the future when you're ready. Are you- what was the immediate trigger that inspired you to write Red Alert? Well, it was when I went to the red red light district when some of the women asked to speak to me. And I was telling you that I was standing in the window and this woman was telling me this most traumatic story. And at the same time, the school children were walking past and thinking it was okay to to like walk down the street as if it was a zoo and, and just laugh and look at the women. And hearing this woman's story was like, it's just struck a knife through my heart it was like my eyes were opened and I could never ever again not stand up and do something and that that made me write my book and the story that Elizabeth was telling me was so horrific I didn't write the whole story in my book because it was really bad but she stood there and she was crying and she's standing in her underwear and we were standing in the window people walking past and she grabbed me and she was crying and I could feel her tears all over me and she, I'm really small, but she was smaller than me. And, and she just, she just broke down and she just couldn't stop crying. And when she stopped, when she did stop crying, she told me that she was just a simple woman. She grew up in Hungary. She had a dream as a child to be a cook, simple job. She got married and she had four children and they were all under the age of 10. Um, One of the children was just six months old and a little baby and one evening she put three children to bed her husband went to work and she was breastfeeding her baby and there was a knock at the door and she didn't answer it and the door was being banged and banged and in the end the door got broken down and these two men ran in and they grabbed her and she was just able to put her baby on the floor and they dragged her out of the house and the last thing she remembers is her children were screaming they woke up and they were screaming mama mama she got thrown into the back of a car and the car sped off down the road from Hungary and it drove all through the night to Germany. And she was just terrified. And she said to them, what do you want with me? Who are you? And they said, 
your husband owes us money and he hasn't paid us. So now you're ours. We own you. So these were like the mafia. And they took her to Germany and they locked her up in a small flat with another girl called Ava. And Ava was about 18. And also the same thing had happened to her. She'd been kidnapped from her family. And Ava and Elizabeth got taken out every day where the motorway would come off to little laybys. And they would be put on either side of the road and men would come in cars and then they would have to go in the car and, and do terrible things with these men. And one day, these traffickers had a fight from different countries about the places where the woman could stand. And one trafficker got so angry with this other trafficker that he ran up to Ava and he grabbed her and he slit her throat and Ava died on the floor in front of Elizabeth. And Elizabeth said she was covered in blood holding Ava and she was so traumatized that Elizabeth ran away. She just ran and ran. And the men found her. And Elizabeth had beautiful long hair. And they shaved her hair off as punishment and beat her up. And then they said to her, if ever you run away again or you speak about this, we're going to go and get your children. We know where you live. And then they said to her, you're trouble. We're going to sell you. So they took her to Amsterdam in the car. And a man got in the car and he felt her all over like a piece of meat. And he said, I'll give you 2,000 euros. That's all you're worth. So the trafficker went off with 2,000 euros and Ava got put in the windows. And at night, she got taken to a flat where there was like about six women all on mattresses in one room. And all the food they got was what I call beige food, brown food, like pizza, chips, sometimes chicken, not vegetables, not fruit, nothing healthy. Lots of coffee to keep them awake. Really, really bad, healthy, unhealthy diet. And every day she would be taken to the red light window, which they rented, and she would be stood in the window seven days a week, many hours. And the traffickers would walk around and watch her. And if ever she didn't give them enough money, they would beat her up and say, we saw three men go in, you've given us money for two. So she couldn't even hide any money. They knew everything. And she was telling me this and she said she'd been there five years. She she didn't see her children grow up. She was like being raped day and night. She was totally traumatized. She said that she just wished she was dead. And at the same time, I'm watching school children laughing and watching people walking down the street, men and women bringing their children. And, and it was like a day out at the zoo. And I was so shocked and horrified that I just couldn't do anything else than write that book so that people would know that this is not okay. How do you define human trafficking? How would you describe the phenomenon to an alien from Mars who had no previous knowledge? What's your definition of human trafficking? Well, trafficking human beings is it's not... Most people think it's taking somebody from one country and bringing them to another against their will. But it's it's more than that. That does happen, of course. Elizabeth from Hungary was taken to Germany and to Amsterdam. I know many women who are taken to different countries, but I also know many women who are, they call, trafficked in their own home, it, being forced to have sex with, with many men because their husband or their boyfriend or a trafficker is earning money on them so it's it's just taking a person and forcing them to do something which is not okay 
so that they would get personal gain. That's what trafficking is. What difficulties do survivors of trafficking face in adapting to regular life after being freed? Mm, that's a good question, because most people think, okay, somebody's safe. They've been taken out of being trafficked or slavery. It's all okay now, but it isn't okay. That's just the start of it. It's a new life. Not only do you have a new life, you're free. You could be in a different country where you don't speak the language. You could be in your own country. You could have the, the right language. But if you're traumatized, you need to get trauma help, which is not easy because it's very difficult if you've had these situations happen to you to be able to talk about it. So if you don't talk about it, how can you get help? And there's not always help out there, especially if you're from another country and you're not legal. You have to, it's a big fight to prove that you are a victim of trafficking and that you're allowed to be in that country. So there's many obstacles and many hurdles. And another thing that I also found myself is that being a victim of trafficking, and I ran away when I was 15, so I didn't get any education, it's very difficult to get a job. And without a job, you don't earn money. And without money, you can't buy a house and you can't have a proper life. So you come into a circle. And I just, I know that every time I've applied for a job and it looks like a brilliant job. I mean, I do a lot of speaking in different countries, different parliaments, different groups, and try to raise awareness and do something. But when I apply for a job, to do the same thing and where where an organization would say we want somebody who's a survivor to have survivor inclusion which seems to be the fashionable word at the moment they you actually have to fill out an application form and you have to tick boxes and this is what really annoys me because mostly it says what diplomas do you have do you have a degree and you can't tick that box so you don't even get an interview so it's so frustrating and then to go to a, another job interview, maybe for something different, and they ask on your CV, where's your education? You don't want to just sit there and tell the interviewee that, oh, yeah, I was raped and trafficked for 20 years or 10 years or whatever. So it's it's just a massive obstacle. Things need to change in that level as well because it's it's not working. How can you have survivor inclusion and help these victims of trafficking to get a normal job if they you just have to tick boxes which they can't tick so that's really difficult as well and then it's really difficult to start a new life if you don't trust people so there's many many things you and if you have people around you don't understand so you feel isolated you can get very anxious you can get mental health issues so there, there's so many things around that's why we need more people to know what's happening I'd love that there'd be so many people who would stand up even after listening to this podcast today and say, you know, I want to be a volunteer for an organization. I want to be a buddy. I want to stand alongside somebody who's got a big struggle ahead of them in their new life. I want to go with them to the doctor. I want to go with them and help them get help. I want to sit with them and, and help them write an application form or make a CV or I want to go to policymakers and say, why is these boxes need to be ticked? If you want somebody who's a survivor to be a voice, to help an organization, to understand better what survivors are going through, to help them in the anti-trafficking, you know, movement, then change the way that you, you know, recruit people. So there's many obstacles. Can you tell us about the organization Bright Fame, which is referred to in your book? What does it do 
how was it started? What does the name signify? How is it similar or different from other organizations doing analogous work? Yeah, Bright Fame is it, an amazing organization. It's very close to my heart because it's the organization that phoned me up and asked me to come and talk to the ladies that they were working with. And it's actually the first organization that I got to know who was working in anti-trafficking. And it started by a man called Fritz Ralfer and his wife, Jacqueline. And they're absolutely amazing people. They work seven days a week tirelessly for many years. And, I mean, Fritz started this organization because of there were so many women who were being trafficked and forced into prostitution. And him and his wife saw this. So they set up an organization. They raise funds. They've got volunteers. And they go out and befriend the women. They bring them back to the office. They help them with all sorts of things from medical and they help them to find housing. They help them to find jobs. Um, yeah, they have evenings where the women can come together and have a meal together. They have counsellors there where the women can come and, and, and talk and get some counselling. They have people who go out and just sit with them and drink a cup of coffee. And so many women have stepped out of being forced into prostitution and got help they've got lawyers that can you know help the women if they want to prosecute it's that the woman's not isolated and alone so you know and um, i mean there's many good organizations that i've got to know international justice mission hope for justice uh helen bamer foundation in england is an amazing organization that really does tire you know really amazing work so I mean, they're all organizations that do amazing things, but Bright Fame is maybe a little bit different because it actually goes out into the red light and works with the girls standing in the windows. And not every country has that. But, yeah, it, but it, it doesn't just think, oh, we're Bright Fame, we're the best. What the strength is, is that Fritz talks to many people in Holland from different organizations, and he works a lot in Romania because when a woman is trafficked from Romania... The best thing is when she's safe is to get her back to Romania to have her life in her own country. So he'll go with them. He'll bring people with him. I've been to Romania with Fritz. I've been out on the street and talked to women and, and got them help because he has um, contacts with organizations in, in Brussels, in, in Romania, in different countries. So if he's got a girl who needs to go back, he's able to go to that organization in their, in another country and get them to help so that on on the whole journey of the of the woman and yeah so this this is bright fame that i think is amazing and and what the strength is is that he doesn't just think oh this is bright fame we're not working with anybody else he gets together people from different organizations and they sit together and they've become friends and they help each other if there's a problem with with one of the women that he can't help he can phone up another organization and say, can you help with this problem? And they can give each other advice. And that's where the strength is, is when people join together and work together. So, yeah, this is bright fame. What are the obstacles to escaping that trafficked women experience? Can you clarify and elaborate? What are the difficulties involved in getting out of such situations? Well, the most obvious, of course, is if you're locked up and you're... I've heard of women who have been locked up in attics and have been abused. And so, of course, you can't escape if you're locked up. So you're a prisoner. But what I hear many of the women say is that the biggest prison is in their minds because Elizabeth, she could have walked out of that 
room where she's standing because the trafficker would go off and have a dinner or go. He wouldn't always be, you know, 24-7 standing and watching her all the time. So she could have at any minute run out of that room and run off and got safe. And many of the women said that, you know, we could run away, but we can't because the, the biggest prison is in our mind. It's psychological as well. Because if um, if somebody's kidnapped you from your house and taken you to the red light in Amsterdam or to a brothel in the UK or to a hotel in, in Canada, uh, whatever, and they tell you, if you try to escape, we're going to go and rape your mother. We're going to go and kill your children. We know where you live. How can you escape? So, and the women who maybe could run away, they, in many different countries, then they're scared of the police. Like in the UK and in the Netherlands, it's fine. The police will help you. But if you're in Hungary or somewhere like a different country where maybe it you've got a, a bad experience of of going to the police, they're scared. And so they don't know. Where can they run to? They can run down the street, but they might not speak the language. This is another barrier language so how do you run away how do you run down the street scared that somebody's going to go and kill your children do you go to a policeman some of these women have been trafficked by policemen so who do you trust where do you go to you haven't got any money you need to eat so you just don't run away and then another barrier um i've got a friend called lena who's amazing and i wrote about her in my book and she got out she lives in america and She's so amazing. She started an organization called 24-7. And she said that one of the biggest barriers is not knowing the law because some of these women are illegal. They think they're going to be arrested and thrown in prison. So Lena has got translators um, in writing things in many different languages. And she's developed this. It's a, a QR code. And... They're made of vinyl and she's getting them put all over the place in hotels and, you know, public toilets in, in airports. She's working with different companies like Uber and like Hard Rock Cafe and many different places who are putting these stickers everywhere. She's getting them put into even brothels. And one of the things that most people who are trafficked have is a telephone because the traffickers like to control them and phone them all the time. And to go into a toilet in an airport, the trafficker's not going to come into the toilet with you. He's going to wait outside. But sometimes you see numbers. Are you being trafficked? Sometimes, you know, you don't have time to get a pen and paper and write this number down. And you're too scared to ring at that minute in case the trafficker hears you. So these codes can just be scanned in one second and it gets all the information into your telephone so that, Another time when the girl is alone, maybe at night when she's in bed, she can look at this site and she can press the language of her her mother language and it will tell you um, the laws in the country that you're in and it will tell you that if you're a victim, if you're being forced, if you're being kidnapped, if you're being taken against your will, then you're not going to get in trouble and, and it can tell you where to get help. And you can press straight away and they, they can even pinpoint where you are. And that's, lots of women have been traffic, uh, have been rescued because of this. So that was another obstacle that if you run away, who do you trust? 
How do you know what the laws are? Are you going to be are you going to be arrested? So by having this somewhere where they can find it and being able to be assured that it's okay, there is help, and here you can get help, that will take that obstacle, you know, that will make that much better. What kinds of obstacles do trafficked women struggle with and suffer from to access psychological help, mental health treatment, and psychotherapy support? Okay, you mean like when they're rescued? Because when they're trafficked, they're not going to be allowed to go to a psychologist. If you're, yes. if you, yeah. So once you get out, I mean, it's very difficult. If you're traumatized, it's very difficult just to tell somebody, oh, I need help. I need therapy. I need to talk about it. It's just something that you don't do. You need somebody to look at you and say, I think you need help. Let me take you and let me help. But if you're not legal in the country, if you don't speak the language, how are you going to know the system? How are you going to know how you can find a psychologist? So, you know, you just really have to hope that you're getting a good care where somebody can jump in and help you and tell you what's available and help you get somebody. And probably with a translator as well, if you don't speak the language. What precautions did you take to protect your sources and interviewees? in preparing and researching this book? Well, first of all, we didn't just walk into the red light with a pen and paper and start interviewing the women, taking their time, because then they would be beaten up for not earning money. The traffickers would be wary and say, what are these people doing going in there and, and talking to this woman? So they'd probably move them and they would we wouldn't be able to find them. So it was safety first. We got the women safe. Um, Bright Fame, the organisation actually, you know, made sure that the women could come to the office safe. They had housing ready. Some of the women were already saved and wanted to just talk to me about their story. But we made sure that they were in a safe place where nobody knew where they were. And we just had to make sure that they were protected. We didn't just go gung-ho and then put the women in danger because that would, that would not be right. And, like, one of the stories in my book is of of a lady in Tel Aviv in Israel. I was, um, what, I went to see what the work was of an organization called Aviv Ministry, which is very close to my heart. My husband's on the board. And it's one of his best friends from many years ago who started this. He's a Russian man and his wife is actually Ukrainian. So they work together and they live in Israel and they saw a lot of people on the streets who were a lot of refugees from from Russia, a lot of people trafficked from different countries, a lot of people forced into prostitution or drug addicts who just needed to earn money. And they, I saw so many drug addicts just laying in this car park, laying on all these needles. I actually crunched my way across the car park, walking across all the used needles to talk to people. And one day we was walking down the street and I saw this, what I thought was an old lady, but she, I found out that she was the same age as me, but she looked really, really old. And she was sitting in the 40 degree temperature. She was sitting on a dirty mattress in the end of a car park in the, in the garbage. And it was the most horrible thing I've ever seen in my life. This poor woman broke my heart. So we started to talk to her. She was Russian. She'd been brought to Tel Aviv by her husband. She was a victim of domestic abuse. He'd beat her. 
He couldn't pay the rent. He was an alcoholic, so he forced her into prostitution. She ended up catching HIV, getting very ill, and he threw her out. And she was a drug addict because he made her get onto drugs because it's the only way he could force her is when she was, like, anaesthetized. So she ended up sleeping on this dirty mattress, this poor woman who was being abused day and night by people who didn't even care they were sleeping with somebody with AIDS. This is how bad it was. And she was beaten and we saw her and the lady with me could speak her language. So we found out that she was just broken. So we took her to a, to a safe place. She got food. She actually got a clean bed and she just wanted to talk. She was just hugging us and she, she just wanted to talk. So she poured out our story and she said that we could use it because she didn't want it to happen to anybody else. And yeah, yeah. this is the things that I've seen. And we, we didn't just march in the middle of the street and just talk to her. And then maybe somebody who was walking around, who was maybe forcing her to sell her body would then beat her up. We've, the story wasn't important. It was important that she got saved, that she got a meal, that she got out of the hot sun, that she got water, that she got a shower. And only, I wasn't even thinking to interview her. That wasn't even part of my mind. But, and I didn't actually interview her. She just poured her whole story out. And I said, can I tell people about this? And she said, yes. So it it wasn't actually like sitting down with a pen and paper. It was actually everything that she poured over us because she wanted to talk. And she said that, she wanted people to know her story was trying to keep it in my mind and writing it down that evening because it it would have been very hard and cold for me to sit down with this broken woman who was hungry and thirsty and just write her story down it was just like how things happened but she was safe we made I would never ever talk to somebody for for their story because that's horrible. What misconceptions about trafficking and prostitution does your book challenge? Why do these misconceptions exist? Where do they come from? Well, I think that the misconceptions is because we're not educated. We don't have awareness. I mean, 12 years ago, I just thought that people who were selling their bodies in, in, in the Netherlands wanted to do it. And I was so wrong. So, and when I talk to people, they just think that, oh, it doesn't happen here. Oh, people want to sell their bodies. They get lots of money because they've never, ever been taught. And when I talk to people, when I talk to medical students, they didn't even know that it was really a, a thing that people were being forced into slavery and trafficking in their own country. They thought it was like far away from my bed show, if you know what I mean. So people just think that it doesn't happen. And People people now here in the UK, we've got a lot of trouble with the government and the refugee problem. And they're just saying, oh, just send them back to their own country. And people are getting mad and, and they've even like beating up refugees saying, oh, you're coming here to take our jobs. And without realizing that many of these refugees are not here because they want to, they're being forced, they're being trafficked. They're being brought to this country and to different countries because they're being forced to sell drugs, sell their body, do domestic work, many things. And these people are just traumatized, broken people. But if we're not educated and we don't know what's happening in the, around us, then how can we? What suggestions would you give listeners to this interview about 
how to become constructively involved in rehabilitating survivors. If a listener to this interview wanted to become engaged in supporting survivors, what should they do? Where should they even begin? If someone listening wanted to volunteer, what steps should they take? Okay. One of the things that I hear a lot after I've done a speaking event somewhere is that people come up to me and say, well, I'm not good at anything. I don't think I'll be able to help. I wish I could, but you know, I don't have any talents. I don't have this or I don't have that. I don't feel wor worthwhile that I can do anything. And one of the things that I say is, of course you can. We can all do something. It doesn't have to be major. We don't all have to run out on the streets and rescue 100 people from trafficking. We can't all do that. We, we might not all have the time to go out and be a volunteer, but what we do have is eyes and ears and a heart. And we have feet that we can walk. And when we see something that doesn't look right in our own street, instead of thinking it's not my business, I'm not going to interfere. It is your business because if you think that some, something's going on in your street, something that's not right, or you see somebody's been even beaten by their husband, let's say, and you do nothing, then I think that you're just, you know, guilty. So we can all do something. We can we can be aware. We can we can phone the police if we think something's happening. We can go up to that person who's looking really scared, who we see taking their shopping and going in the house and not talking to people. We can go and knock on the door and say, would you like to come and have a cup of tea with me? These are small steps, but it's, it's a step. You can also look what sort of organizations is in your area. You can send them an email, phone them up, turn up at the door and say, I don't really know what I can do, but I want to do something. Have you got any ideas? Can we have a conversation? I spoke to a teenage teenager once who said, you know, after hearing and reading your book, I want to do something, but I don't think that I'm good at it. I said, well, how do you know until you try? And I phoned Bright Fame up and Fritz said, let her come and be a volunteer a day a week or one day a month or whenever. So this girl who was 17, she started just to go out on, in the team and it was small steps. She would have a cup of tea with the woman and just chat, be a friend, go out and ask somebody, do you need any help? This is where you can come and get help. She did this for a year and then she um, went went to university and did a study to do with human trafficking. She's now a social worker and she still volunteers and she's actually one of the best because she really has empathy with the women and she's amazing and she's helped so many people. And it started with a small step, going to an organisation and just having a cup of tea and befriending somebody who was a survivor of trafficking or a victim. And if you say, well, I don't think I could do that, maybe you could donate to an organisation, have a look in your area. I've got many organisations in my book. I've got a task force that we need funds so that we can really get out and educate our school children against grooming and, and medical students, businesses, you know, so then maybe you can donate because you might not be able to go out yourself, but you might be able to enable somebody else to go out and help. So that's what I would say, that everybody can do something, even if it's just keeping an eye in your own street, in your own town. And if you think something's not right, trust your instinct and open your mouth and do something. Say something, phone somebody, go and volunteer, donate. Um, that's my advice, is that we can all do something. I thought 
I'm invisible, I'm stupid, who's going to see me? But now I can really use my voice to shout loudly. I'm writing my third book. People said I couldn't even write the first book. So don't let that voice inside your head tell you you're not good enough because if you believe that, no one will ever get help. And if you step up and you do even lit something little and one person gets helped, that one person is actually somebody's daughter. And if it was your daughter or your mother or your friend, you wouldn't care that 100 people didn't get rescued. You'd be so thankful that that one precious person is rescued. So that's enough as well. So that's my advice, is let's stand up together. Let's make the voices louder and louder and louder like a snowball. And then amazing things can happen. And it can start with you, just that one tiny step. As we bring our dialogue today to a close, can you tell us about where your attention has been going since the completion of this book? Well, now, because I've met more and more uh, survivors, victims, and learned more and more about what's happening in the anti-trafficking world, I realized that, you know, it's really important to educate and raise awareness and to stand up and use my voice and tell people, because even today speaking, even if one person who listens now will suddenly realize what's happening in their own town and will stand up and maybe be a volunteer or donate or do something that they wouldn't do otherwise, then it's worth it. So that's where my passion is and that's what I want to do. So now I go around different countries, different places and use my voice. And I'm writing this book with Alison, Health and Slavery, to hope to, to spread the word that we need more education for healthcare workers. I'm concentrating on my task force. I want to go more and more into schools because I'm meeting more and more school children who are being groomed, who are being forced to do selling drugs, selling their bodies, and there's no one helping them. They don't dare say what trouble they're in. So to go into schools and start a conversation, we're giving protection to our children. So this is where I'm at at the moment is using my voice, hoping to be invited to more and more places so that more and more people become aware. Thank you for your time, for your eloquence, and for everything you generously shared with us in the course of this dialogue. I'm tremendously fortunate and sincerely appreciative. And thank you so much for inviting me and giving me the opportunity to talk about my book. And I hope that, you know, it's opened some eyes of people to get a few more, like, steps so that we can do this together. Thank you. Okay, thank you. To, to our listeners, I'm your host today on the New Books Network, Ari Barbalat. I've been in dialogue with Jane LaSonder. We have been discussing her book, Red Alert, The Inside Story of Prostitution and Human Trafficking, published in Zwolle, Netherlands by Skolten, 2016. Thank you. Thank you.